на трибунах холеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона разноцветные майки цветут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News Podcast. This week's a little bit of a more auspicious and enjoyable episode for our Zenit fans out there. Now, I have been a little bit critical of Zenit of late, but once again, that efficient machine led by Artyom Zuba and Sardar Azmoun up top have won the league in the RPL, and it's the third year in a row. And this week, actually, there's a trio of threes for Zenit, as Sardar Azmoun scored a hat-trick at the weekend as he set a new record of the fastest 50 goals in Zenit history. It was in just 82 matches. And Andre Mostavoy also signed a new three-year deal with the Giants. We're going to cover them, as well as some debacle around Fennel clubs receiving licences to getting promoted in the Fene- into, into the RPL, and the latest managerial rumours regarding Spartak Moscow. To do so is David Sanson. Hello, hello. And Richard Pike. Good evening, James. Good evening, David. How are we all? I'm good. I'm surprised. I really did not expect Senate at the weekend, and of course, they defeated Lokomotiv 6-1 to end Loco's long winning streak. And Richard, you caught the game. What did you think of Zenith's performance? And did you expect it either? I think we were all kind of stunned, weren't we, with that with that game? Because um, going into that game, you know, Lokomotiv they played they played really really well. They were they were really banging form. Um, and we were all saying, you know, before the game, how you know if Lokomotiv can win this. It drops the gap down to three points, and then Zenit would have to go to Ufa for the penultimate game. And Ufa have been, you know, revitalised recently under um, Stukarlov's management. And you just never know, you know, if, if Ufa then got a win, it could got it could get really interesting. But but no, Zenit they recovered the composure and just absolutely blew Lokomotiv away. Um, it was, you know, um, just a very dominant performance from them right from the get go. Um, some of the goals that they scored were were absolutely excellent. Um, the second goal from Asmoon, just a brilliant header from a super cross. That was Malcolm's best game, uh, I think, in his Zenit shirt. You know that that was the kind of performance from him that you know that's that's the kind of performance from him that made you sit up and think, yeah, that's the guy who did superbly well for Bordeaux in, in Ligue 1 and got that move to Barcelona. That's why Zenit paid the money for for this guy. You know, his his cross for. For the fourth and Asmoon's second was was exceptional too, and then he hit an absolute rocket into the back cut into the back of the net for the for the sixth goal. Um, just a totally dominant performance from Zenit. Um, Zuba led the line well. Asmoon they worked so well as a pair, and yeah, just a totally dominant performance from Zenit. Um, hugely deserved victory, um, and they highlighted once again that even though. They've probably not been quite at the same high standard as last year in the league. No one else can challenge them at the moment. They just are too good for the opposition at the moment and it's up to the other teams to step up next year. So, um, yeah, that just, after a wobbly period post-Christmas, that kind of that kind of game just reasserted Zenit's superiority. They, mm-hmm. they got on top early doors and just, just slammed the door shut on any potential challenge from Lokomotiv in the last couple of games. I think of late, that's really what's shown through with Zenit in the last what, three years is is exactly that of, of showing their authority, of really stamping down upon the title. They We've mentioned a couple of times that Spartak got close and bottled it, Siska got close and bottled it, and now Loco have. But 
there's one common denominator here, and it's not it's not just the teams bottling it. It's that every single time somebody does get close, Zenit really turn it on. They have a, a, a squad and a backroom staff who were brimming with title experience, and not a single other team in Russia can say that right now. Obviously, with a, a lot of them really going through rebuilds and and bringing through a lot of younger players of late, but I thought it was a real champions performance from Zenit, and it really, if anything, shows why they are the champions. It's that match, the the front four, as you said, Richard, which is absolutely brilliant, and Loco, who are arguably the best, if not second best, defense in the league behind Zenit, or one of them. I think Richard might, uh, David might protest to that with Rubin's defense at times, but. They looked so solid previously, but they were all over the place at the back. Pablo probably had his worst game in the local shirt, and it wasn't just because they were bad. It was Zenit really turning it on. Now, one thing that local did have during this run is a lot of wins and a lot of individual brilliance, but the XG and the expected threat, the XT throughout, were not particularly high. And if you looked at the longer-term analytics, it was really based upon solid defending and individual brilliance and maybe something like this with Zenit really turning it on and being really in form was perhaps inevitable or at least the fall of the end of the the winning streak was maybe inevitable sooner rather than later. Now this is the latest of Zenit's three RPL titles in a row, like the latest one in terms of uh, distance into the season being the 28th week that they've won it in. But David, what have you been so impressed by with Zenit this year, and where can they go from here? Um, it's just sort of really how Zenit sort of we go through most of the season without really talking about Zenit, you know, domestically. Whether you know this year we were too busy talking about how poor they were doing in Europe, uh, while at the same time they were still, you know, just trundling along domestically, picking up the points they needed to. Not usually in the greatest of style, uh, you know. Not usually extravagantly. Um, it's a bit like how I sort of remember you, Man United from when I was younger. You know, they they would always get the points, even if it took them until the 90th minute of the match. You know, they would always get the points, and then it always found a way, even when they were rotating, um, to get the points. You know, they lost three times this season. Um, two of them to Ruben. I will bring that up. I don't think we've got a good defence though. Um, so I think I think it's just that you know they they've got that you know level of experience around the squad. You know people talk about Simak. You know he's he's probably not a good manager in term on the wider scale for Russia. He's good enough, but he has got a very good um, set of tools at his disposal in terms of money and therefore the squad that he he has. Um, you know it, it's weird to see a team that plays. Almost, you know, four four two like then it do. You know, it's such an uncommon formation in the current game, but um, obviously they make it work. And you know, it was it was really like an exhibition match uh, on the weekend. You know, they absolutely looked dominant. Loco were just not there. Rubchinsky, who had been at right back for the last few weeks or so, really suddenly you, you suddenly rumoured, oh, he actually isn't the right back because he was uh, he was all over the shop with the goal that. Zenit scored 15 seconds into the second half. He just let Asmoon have a free header at the back post, which uh, is never ideal. Literally just let, let, let him run three or four yards off him. Um, on the assumption that the limit's not changing, you know, we've not heard anything. You know, we we look 
to next season, we think, right, well, Zenit are, you know, that squad is going to stay probably largely the same. The Russian core is probably going to stay the same, let's be honest. Like, you, you, you wouldn't expect many of the Russian players to leave. We might see Asmoon go. We may see Jerusi go. You know, they're both... Hasmoon has had plenty of rumours throughout his career, but obviously a lot in the last year. He's only got a year left on his contract, so it's Drewsy, I'm pretty sure. Drewsy also, talk, also talked about going. So they'd be two big players to 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 replace. I think Malcolm's pretty happy out there with with the the other Brazilians in the squad. Wendell's been a great signing. Um, so they'll probably have at least two foreigner spots there to, to fill. Um but also they need to get a defender. You know, they have to sign a centre back this summer. Um, you know, they they you you would expect them to probably try and pick up Chistikov permanently. You know, he's he's not played all that often, but he's been a you know a decent backup and rotating. You know, he played on the weekend, fill in the gaps. But next week, you know, let's just assume they're going to rotate. Rikitsky's suspended, so it's going to be. Um, Chistyakov and probably Khotula, the, the youngster who's not made a start for the first team yet, who are going to play. You know, Prokin might come back and come in the squad next year, having had his bit of experience at Sochi. Uh, on the assumption Sochi qualified for Europe, I'd be almost tempted to give him another season there, get him get him alone, another full season of playing, some experience in Europe, that would be handy. But Zenit may well need him. So it's going to be, going to be a big, big summer. You know, they're... If the squad doesn't change, they're going to be competitive for the league. But if they lose those two players, as Moon and Drusi, they they've got some big replacements to have to do. In addition to having to really, you know, if they want to up their game in Europe, they have to be bringing a better centre half um, and probably a goalkeeper as well. Um, and with the limit changing, they're, they're going to be tight to do that. So that that's sort of what I'm looking forward. To. To see what they do, that, that's what that's all they really have to do in the summer is manage just manage their squad. You know, don't let things happen late. Don't let Asmoon move on deadline day. If you're going to let him go, let him go early so you can get a replacement in. Um, you know, taking that that cog, essentially two cogs out of that front four that we've talked about already. Um, it's going to be it's going to be big. You know, they've got such a good rapport, him and Zuba. Um, it's going to be tough to do so. It's uh, I think it's probably the one one of the most important summers they've had in quite a while um, to see how they're going to manage the situation they've got in their hands. But ultimately, we expect to see them up there and challenging again, just because of the the funds they've got available. Um, yeah, I think that's what I want to say. <laughs> yeah, of course, Tracy and Asmund are both out of contract at the end of next season, so they will only have one year left. So. If Zenit are really to try and get the best bang for the buck, it's it's now that they need to sell them or sign them down to new deals. And to be honest, I can't really imagine either doing that. Um, Drewsy will be off. Um, it's not like he's exactly a first-team regular at Zenit anyway. Um, he's off for me no matter what. Uh, Asmun, they could tempt to stay, obviously, with his record of how long he's been in Russia, but... He with the links, the moves he's potentially linked to, I think he'll be silly not to not to make that move to a higher level. My worry about Zenit of where do they go from here? Zenit's defense def- definitely needs to be improved. And you had uh, Vladimir Fedotov, Sochi boss, just to say even mention in the press that 
uh, he needs he thinks he'll need two squads for Sochi next season if they get into Europe, one for Europe, one for domestic. And Zenit have already proven that that is the best way forwards. But the issue Zenit have is that they have got two decent centre-backs. I mean, Rakitsky went far in the Europa League with Shakhtar and Lovren has won, won the Champions League and has been runner-up in the Champions League and a runner-up in the Europa League when he was at Liverpool. But both of them, maybe it's unfair to say this about Lovren with the record I've just said that he has, but I don't think either of them are really quite good enough for the level that Zenit are looking to be at, where they're looking to be in the elite, or at least the next group down from that real top elite that's all trying to get in the Super League. And the foreign limit makes that difficult because if they want to improve the defence, they have to go foreign. And then they'll have four foreigners on the books if you include Mamana coming back from Sochi, which he won't, but he's technically still a Zenit player. So they need to improve, but they can't do it with the Russian. But then with only eight foreigner spots, you really don't want potentially 35 to 50% of those spots to be centre-backs because you need them released elsewhere, especially if Asmoon and Jalusi does go. So this potential overhaul is really going to be quite difficult for Zenit to to navigate. And obviously with Javier Rebolta joining Palmer, the best man to do it's just left. So it, it, it's definitely big. Big one for them, but... Richard, do you expect better from Europe, from Zenit, and especially from Semak next season? Because that seems to be where he got most flack. Just to quickly come in, yeah, um, yeah, Europe's got to really improve. Um, I'll get on to that in a minute, but just a quick one regarding like the, the summer transfers. I have heard about Chischakov. Apparently, Zenit are looking to make that move permanent, which I think could be quite interesting. Um, in terms of defenders, it'd be interesting to see if they possibly even look at some of that Ostipenko. Um, I know, I know that they were they were linked with um, with him before. I think before they got Chischakov, which could be quite interesting. As for the defence, I actually think maybe they might even think about moving Rakitsky on. I actually wouldn't be surprised because you know he's not been as good this season. Rakitsky. That's the general impression I got. He, his mistake led to Locomotive's goal um, at the weekend too. Um, you know, he, he got caught in possession by Kamano and you know, simple tapping them for Kamano. Yeah, just generally this season he's not been quite as good as the last 18 months and I think he's only got one year left on his contract. So Lovren obviously is the big name you'd be keeping. But yeah, maybe maybe they might move Rakitsky on. Um, I think Mamama's injured again, so I suspect he'll probably be moved on in the summer. Um, I think he's another one with one year left on his contract. So yeah, they're, they're probably if they're going to bring in another defender, they're probably going to have to move Rakitsky on and Mamama on. I suspect they probably will with Mamama. But yeah, the big two are definitely Asmoon and Drusi. I think Drusi probably will leave. I think well, absolutely certain he will leave. And Asmoon, I'd say it's probably fifty-fifty at the moment. I suspect though he probably will go because he's aged what twenty-six now, and the opportunity to play in Europe in Western Europe probably won't come up won't won't um you know have too many more chances at his age because like i say you know the top clubs are recruiting younger and younger now so you know i think if he's going to go this this is the summer to go with your as moon interesting to see what what they do with both those um those two positions because they're the key positions um you know it's interesting how they tried Jerusi in behind zuba centrally in the uh win against rotor so it'd be interesting to see if they um you know maybe look to buy a different you know you know an out and out second striker to replace Asmoon. Um, I saw them link with 
uh, sorry, to replace um, Drusy. Um, I, I did see them link with Montpellier's Gate and Laborde, which that's quite interesting. He's a striker. Um, I think Montpellier play a two up front formation with him and Andy Delore, so that could be that could be something worth keeping an eye on. But I think I think they've seen them link with um, Gabriel Barbosa too, who used to be at Inter Milan. I think he's playing back in Brazil. So uh, with I think it's Flamengo. I think. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see what Zenit do with those with those two positions because I suspect they're probably going to be freed up. And then Europe, yeah, Europe's the big the big um the big one for Samak because um, this will be his third season in the Champions League and the last two have not been great. Uh, well, <laughs> the the first one was 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 not terrible, but it it fell apart in the final game and the second campaign was just absolutely dreadful. Um, you know, there's actually a crazy possibility, depending on the winners of the Europa League and the, the Champions League, that Zenit could actually end up in pot one again next season in the Champions League and get a top seeding, or they could be in any of the pots. I've just had a look now on um, on, on the possibilities, and they could be in any pot next year, because even still be in pot one, depending on results elsewhere. So it's going to be interesting to see what what happens with that. Simak's got to do better in Europe, um, you know. If they can get a pot one seeding again, it's probably going to be the very last time that they get that, given the coefficients tumble quite a bit. They're going to have to take take full advantage of it and at least try and get Europa League football. Just they've just got to just pray they get a decent draw, and just pray that they improve the performances in Europe. Um, I think Zenit have got the players to do it, but this next season's going to be big for Samak because we've we've seen how he can dominate domestically, but Europe he's come short, you know, and there's got to be an improvement. There's got to be an improvement next season in Europe. So recruitment will be absolutely massive this summer. And um, Samak's also got to take on to himself to improve tactically in Europe. So it's going to be an interesting summer ahead, I think. I think where Zenit are at right now is they, they're almost turning into what Celtic were in Scotland a few years ago, where domestic success was all but nailed on. Maybe not to the extent it is over there. And all improvements they made were really looking towards improving in Europe. I'm not sure if that's really going to happen due to the issues, as we mentioned, regarding the structure and finances and everything around the RPL away from Zenit's own successful machine. But this is a podcast to celebrate Zenit and what they've done this season and what they've done in the last three seasons, really, because they've just been... Such an efficient and at times brilliant machine, so well oiled, and we we keep hearkening back to their efficiency and how solid they are. But at times the individual quality is just second to none. Especially that I mean the Zuba goal, the first one at the weekend, perhaps maybe shouldn't have stood with the VAR debacle for the challenge on Rebush, but the finish was just unbelievable to chip it like that on his le- on his weaker foot from the distance first time. Just the the class just is just is throughout the squad as well, and and Semak actually has the fifth highest points per game of any Zenit manager in the RPL. So he's, he's pretty pretty damn good, really. And anyway, we're going to move on now to the champions of the RPL to the champions of the Finnl in Krilia Sovietov first, as Krilia, as things stand, currently will not be promoted into the Premier League as Krilia, along with five five of the top six, including Torpedo, uh, Neftakimik, Alania, Baltica and Orenberg, have all been denied licences to appear in the RPL. Now, each one is for 
differing issues and some of which have the, the clubs at the time were not actually made aware of the issues from the initial statement and they can't until the 12th appeal to any decision and prove otherwise now it has came out afterwards that Quilliers is in particular regarding financial debts and the lack of paying payment of these debts and their uh, general director, director Yevgeny Kalakutsky, did comment on the situation for, uh, just earlier on today, and that he said the procedure for licensing professional clubs by the RFU has undergone changes. The requirements for all criteria have become more stringent. As you know, this affected not only our club, but of course everyone's problems are different. Krillia has the comments on financial criteria, and they are clear now to us, and we are working upon rectifying them. In the next two days, we'll prepare documents and send them to the RFU. There are problems, but I'm sure that everything will be fine. Now, it's generally expected that Karelia could potentially sell some of their bigger assets if we do take these clubs one at a time. And David, you've been covering Karelia quite extensively this year, and one of their players has been linked to Rubin, while another one has just broke the all-time goal scoring record in the second division. Yep, that's right. Um, you know, we, we we'll ignore the off the pitch debacle for a second and just talk about yeah on the pitch. Yeah, they won the league um, with a win in the week. Um, Spartak two, it was their game in hand that they had from uh, their cup run. You know, to postpone a couple of couple of games. Um, yeah, and they went to Moscow and uh, they just knew that a win was going to be enough to get it. And uh, they, they did it in comfortable style. It was just a, a routine 2-0 win. And uh, the man, the man, the myth, the legend that is Ivan Sergeyev scored two goals. Could have had a trick actually. Had a penalty saved um, to break the all-time goal-scoring record for the Russian second tier, which was previously 38 with his, with his brace. He was on, uh, he's now at 39. Uh, yeah, the penalty he actually missed was the one for his 39th, which is quite funny. All that pressure, all the goals that he scored this season, and then when it came to that crucial moment, it was it was quite a tame penalty, actually. Um, but he then scored. It was literally a gimme from Golenkov. Gave him the easiest goal probably he's had all season, like a tap-in. Like, Golenkov had a goal and basically just gave it to Sergeyev. That's how, that's how it was. And it was a nice moment there. He, he ran off and celebrated, and his teammates did the older, you know, uh, lift him above the heads and chuck him up in the air, which was nice, you know, that, to recognise that. Um, it'd be interesting to see what they do for the rest of the season. Do they rest? Do they rotate and rest for the cup, or do you carry on playing to to, to go for like a hundred points because that's doable uh, with the rest of the season? Uh, or do you save your best men? You know, what if you play Sergey for the next two matches? You know, if they win both their next two matches, they end the season one hundred one points. Do you, do you play your best team, or do you save it all for Lokomotiv? in the cup final, you know. So, yeah, could carry on scoring one more goal when he's got 40, which is, you know, that's a nice, uh, you know, it's a great milestone. So I'll, I'll be interested to see what they do there. Um, and, yeah, he's, yeah, I, I was surprised to see that link this morning, uh, Roman Yezhov, one of the one of the crop that came from Chertanova last summer, um, linked to Rubin. At first, I was a bit sort of disappointed in it. He's he's one of the older players from the crop, Um and his numbers this season aren't like blow you away good numbers considering he's in a you know he's one of the wingers who plays in that squad. When I thought about it a bit more, he's you know, Ruben need another winger and he's a right he's a left footed right side player just like Makarov. 
and Ruben recently played a game where Makara was suspended and Kalicha was injured. And our, our wingers, uh, the backup to our wingers was not pretty. So um, uh, when I thought about it more, I thought, actually, this this is fine. It's, it wasn't enough to get me fully excited. Like, if we'd gone for, like, uh, Zinkowski, I'd probably have been a bit happier. But um, it actually makes sense in my head, and I'm sure he'll be all right. You know, he scored a cracker against uh, Dinamo in the Cup recently as well. So, um, yeah, we'll see how that goes. You know, there's, there's going to be that whole squad there for the taking, potentially, this summer. Um, I say just for the pod, we were... I'd read that um, Krastar were investigating Segev, you know, a man who's potentially going to score 40 goals has allegedly got a release clause of under 400,000 euros. Uh, and he's only 25. You know, he's almost you know, at the peak of his career. So that's a bargain for anyone, not just Russian clubs, to, to go and pick up. So, uh, so yeah, a fully deserved title from, from them. They've been fantastic all season. It would be a shame, really, to to see that team ripped apart. It, it's totally understandable. Yeah. Like you'd presume that a lot of them have similar release clauses due to their age and and because they came from Chitanova, um, a, a club that every single RPL team sends uh, a lot of scouts to, obviously, for look at the record of previous players. I mean, it would be a massive shame to see that team ripped apart, but yeah. So I'd like to see how they continue together and develop together as opposed to apart. Uh, I read recently some comments. I can't remember who it was, but they were just saying about, you know, it's going to be standard old Karelia who come up, not the good Karelia with their young crop of players. It will be Karelia come up, their good young players get taken and they sign a bunch of old experienced guys and get relegated again. That's what they were expecting. Um, yeah. And that's the, the pessimistic side of Russian football. And we hope it doesn't happen. Um, because you know we'd like to see them unleashed on the RPL together as a unit. You know that that squad probably plays so well because a lot of them have grown up playing together at you know at Chetanova. So um, yeah, it would be a real shame to see that happen. Of course, Krilia did have Sergei Kornelenko on the bench again, back out of retirement for the first time recently. So where better than to get rid of one 39 goal target man in Sergeyev to get a 39 year old target man in Kornelenko to replace him, and that would be peak Krillia, but no, for them, I really do hope that they can keep as much of the squad together as possible. And as a little cheat, uh, peek behind the curtain of the audience, I've really used this whole licensing debacle for a nice little longer-term conversation about the top of the Finnetel and, and the clubs involved, but it would be great. It, 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 they are expected, by the way, to, to pay off these debts and to be promoted, so it's more a matter of when and not if. But if we do move on to a more complex case, that is Orenberg in second. And of course, Orenberg have been based in the Gazovic Stadium for quite some time now. It is in the centre of Orenberg. And the issue emanating Orenberg's denial is that they, the Gazovic itself only actually holds 7,500 attendees, not the, new, the minimum of 10,000. And... Orenberg's president, uh, Vasily Elomiakin, has announced that there will be a reconstruction of the Gazovic Stadium in order to be licensed to participate. He's mentioned that the situation has created discomfort for some time. We've got a fairly new stadium, which we did actually reconstruct in 2016 when we then entered the RPL. But by the end of May, the contractor must issue a finished project. And in June, we will begin reconstruction to bring the number of people in the ground to 10,000. So they have actively promised the RFU, to paraphrase the rest of the quote, 
they have actively promised the RFU to work towards that and they aren't just saying that this will happen. It's very much like Ska Kabarovsk, who couldn't have they didn't have their stadium ready for the start of their season, but oh was it Yensei? Who uh, Yensei, sorry, who didn't have their stadium ready for the start of their season, but did then move back into their stadium once it was ready. Of course the big issue regarding stadium relocation is that a new rule for registering and as the Krilia director Kalakutsky mentioned, it has been made more stringent. One of those rules was that after the Tambov debacle, clubs are no longer allowed to play in other cities. So Orenberg would want to play in Orenberg, but have to extend their stadium. And it has been quite a long and drawn out process because if you go if you go to Orenberg and go to the Gazafik, it's like a, 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 a blink and you'll miss it stadium because it's very small in the middle of quite a nice leaf, leafy neighbourhood. And it's literally as a, a Western European audience would know is it looks like an Ikea, just blue corrugated steel outside and it's quite small and there's really not a lot of area where they can actually develop it, but they have promised to do so. So with Orenberg, it is a inevitability, hopefully that they will because of this promise. Um, if they can prove to the RPL that they will follow through on that, uh, the team who finish uh, are currently third in the Finnell, though Nizhny Novgorod have actually been granted a fin- uh, an RPL license as things stand. So, Richard, are you particularly surprised about Nizhny being granted a license, considering they were, of course, a, a World Cup host city? I mean, the stadium at Nizhny, you know, it, it's. It, I think it, you know, they were always going to pass. I think, um, you know. I think you know that facility is, is an RPL standard facility. It's a, it's a lovely ground on the out. It's beautiful on the outside, and um, you know it was. I think that stadium was always going to pass the licensing criteria. Um, I mean, I'd like Nishni to go up based on you know performances on the pitch. You know, I don't get me wrong. I, I wanted to see someone like Nishni or Baltica in the RPL this season. I'm happy Aquilio have gone back up and to to expand on the Aquilio thing. I think these are situations which they should sort out. I, I can't imagine this is something that will take too long to sort out. Um, it's probably just small things and I'm, I'm sure Aquilio, they seem pretty confident so I'm pretty sure that that will get sorted out. I mean, the Orenberg thing is it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because that stadium's obviously been used in the RPL before um, and 10,000 seats. I mean, my personal opinion on this is that so long as the ground is of a moderate size, as long as it's modern, then to me it should be allowed in. I, I, I mean, Orenberg's ground. You're right in the way you describe it, James. It is sort of you know an interesting. Um, <laughs> it almost looks like something that you'd flat pack and, and put together from IKEA or something. But it is still a stadium, and you know it's relatively modern, and it's just about the right size for a club like Orenberg. You know, do they really want to be building? just too big a stadium, you know, um, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, I, I personally think that ground is fine, but obviously if they have certain criteria it has to be met, then so be it. It is to me a little bit harsh, but at the end of the day, if that's what has to happen, so be it. Let's see if they can um, get that stadium into, into shape, but yeah, Orenburg, but yeah, Nishni stadium. Yeah. I think that was always going to pass the, um, the criteria. It was, you know, it's an RPL ready stadium. I think it's hosting the cup final this year in the, in the Russian cup, I think. Um, I was just thinking more about the the stadium situation. Obviously, the there's no advantage being given to Nizhny because Baltica obviously also have a World Cup stadium. 
and they've been rejected on other grounds. So you can sort of see that there's, at the very least we can rule out World Cup bias because um, also clearly I have a World Cup stadium. So, um, you know, they've only accepted one out of the, out of the three. Uh, the point that I was thinking of there while, while you were both chatting was, you know, they ha- they've put a limit on, right, which is it seemingly is 10,000 seats. The RPL want 10,000. And I can sort of see why they're doing it um, purely because, you know, the RPL or the RFU obviously wants Russian football to grow. And I'm imagining they're thinking, right, if teams are going to come up, you know, they want to, we want to grow the league. We want to get more fans. If we want a good impression to fans around the world, admittedly, when I think back to my early days of watching football at Amcar or Tom Tom score, wherever, when those, those, you know, a lot of them are, let's just say dreadful, um, like bowls, Soviet style stadiums, um, you know, they, they have their shine, but to a, to a growing football game, to a, let's just say young audience, cause football is, you know, ultimately aimed at a younger audience for the most part. Um, they're not the kind of stadiums that people are going to want to go to. Um, Norenberg's obviously is a new one, which is, is harsh. And obviously they're going to have to expand it. Uh, and they, they're in a tight area, but um, ultimately if that's, I sort of put, put that a little bit on Norenberg, you know, if, if that was a club who had ambitions, don't build your stadium in a place where there's no, no, potential growth you know, you know they've self-limited themselves um so it, it's a tricky one i can see why they put that restriction in place you know it does obviously hamper the underdogs if underdogs come up especially you know tambov's old stadium i think if they were having to play in tambov i think their old stadium was like two and a half thousand um, which is why obviously they ended up playing for the last two years in nizhny Novgorod and, and saransk um so yeah, I sort of see it. I can see both sides of the coin in terms of in terms of what the RFU are doing, and then also, you know, if Avellas Moscow or Chertanova, you know, Chertanova almost made the playoffs last year uh, until the season was cut short, and you know, what would have happened? They they certainly wouldn't have made the the licensing, and they wouldn't have been allowed to play elsewhere. Apparently, or um, well, especially maybe they would have if you say they're just not allowed to play in other cities because they could have then played it, you know, Luchniki or whatever. But yeah, with the case of like Alania, who have been playing sometimes at, in Grozny this season. Um, yeah, I, I, I sort of see it, you know, Alania, I'm surprised their stadium isn't big enough considering, the, you know, they're former RPL champions and, and things like that. So it's, it's a tricky one. I, I see both sides of it and I, I don't actually know where I fall on it. Because because now I'm seeing both sides of it. Um, I think teams should come up on merit. I, I you know I see it from a business side. You know where we also need to make sure that the integrity of the league remains and that you know it's not going to be a farce. But um, you know if a team's done well enough, they they should they should be allowed to play what in the league that they learn the right to play in. Um, so so yeah. That was uh, that was just why I had to add to that. And that is David doing his best Florentino Perez impression, everyone. <laughs> Saying that <laughs> football is for the youth. No, I, I unsurprisingly, because I am a natural-born contrarian, um, not particularly fond of this rule. Um, 
if I can, like I say, I, I agree. I can see why they're doing it and why they think yeah, it's the yeah. right thing to do. But I really don't think that it is. I mean, it's not quite a field of dreams situation where if you build it, they will come. Um, mm. Look at Fakel. Fakel Central, and he's got like a 31,000 maximum attendance, and their average is about six. Um, Baltica's old Baltica Stadium was too big for their fan base, never mind the Kaliningrad Stadium, which is now what a domestic match is 30, 33, 34,000. Um, Maximum attendance and there, I mean, Baltica's average is about 1500. So I can understand why the RPL want Orenberg to have the facilities because if you look at top divisions around the world, there's not many clubs with such a small stadium as that, and it is absolutely tiny. But I, I believe that football should be a merit, and I don't think that smaller clubs should be stopped getting to the highest level possible for them just because they are small and just because of who they are. Yeah. I think it's I'm inherently against it just because the same reasons I'm inherently against the Super League or inherently yeah. against the formation of the Premier League when it was. I mean I can like I can see the benefits of them. I just don't necessarily think it's the right direction for football to go into. Yeah. Uh, the, interesting, I mean the, this isn't a Russia only situation. All leagues around the world have certain Rules that must be met um, in the English non-league, for example, if you're going from tier 8 to tier 7, which is miles away from even the football league, um, you must have 500 seats in the ground, not just terraces. Uh, terraced areas as of now, since the Taylor Report in 1991, are not, uh, and after Hillsborough are banned from the Premier League. All seaters in the Premier League must be fully seater stadiums or a uh, rail seating, which is kind of a mix of both. So this isn't just a only RPL and only Russian problem. What I don't like and what I agree with the Orenberg director is that look, we rebuilt it five years ago to meet your minimum requirement then. We're going to rebuild it now to meet a minimum requirement now. And what happens in five years time if we're not in the league? Is it just another minimum requirement? Is it going to constantly increase and increase and increase at an exponential level. That's not really possible for these clubs to keep having to meet. There's no coincidence out of the top six, two of the clubs who are in the financial issues and have got the licenses denied due to financial issues have got massive stadiums that they really can't afford to run. Of course, with Krillia, that was exacerbated and exacerbated by COVID and by the relegation. If they weren't relegated, there wouldn't be in those issues. If it wasn't for COVID and the inability to get fans in, because Krillia do have a pretty damn good average attendance on history, um, they wouldn't be in that situation. So it's a bit unfair to, to, to compare them to Orenberg and Baltica, but that's what the RPL is doing. They have one set bar for all of these clubs that all of these clubs must meet. Um, it needs to be more means tested and it needs to be fairer against smaller teams because. They're judging Orenberg, who are subsidiary of Gazprom as well, to Zenit, the subsidiary of Gazprom, and the two sides are incomparable. Let let Orenberg have their small stadium. Let them have the potential fairy tale. Just, I mean, they were top of the league at one point when they were last in the RPL. Um, and during the last run, look at Rostov, one of the greatest stories of the RPL in recent in recent years playing out of the seven 
1,500 attendance Olymp 2. Almost winning the league. Literally, Igor Akinfeyev won to save away from winning the league. So I, I can I, I totally sympathise with the RFU and the RPL and what they're trying to do in terms of a more sustainable future for Russian football. I just don't necessarily agree with the methods of how they are doing it. Richard, I don't know what your thoughts are and general thoughts on this. Yeah, I'd say I take on board a lot of points what you guys have just said there. Um, I just want to jump in on some of the other clubs in this whole um, situation as well. I think Alani are currently in the process of modernising their stadium, um, which you know I've seen some building work. I think I watched the Feniel game between them and Quilia recently. I saw some, I think it was some construction um, vehicles in and around the ground. So I think they are trying to modernise their facility. Um, obviously, they probably don't expect promotion this season. Obviously, you know, to get into the promotion playoffs would be a bonus for them. But, you know, I can understand why. I mean, they probably might, even Alania might not even see themselves as ready yet for the RPL. I think, you know, the situation there is interesting. Same with Torpedo. They're, they're modernising their ground. Although Torpedo, because to be fair to the Russian Football Union, the one thing I will credit them for is to stop the Tambov first of old. They have now said that they have to be playing in the same city. Now, that, obviously gives advantage to Moscow and St. Petersburg clubs because there is stadiums that they can use. You know, if a St. Petersburg club, a smaller one ever found themselves in this situation, they could probably use Zenit's old ground, the Petrovsky. You know, it's, they could hire that out. And obviously the big one with Torpedo is if, if they manage to go up to the RPL before their new stadium modernisation is completed, they'd obviously, it's the Luznicki. Now they could afford to play there. And to be honest, the RFU probably won't be against that because if you think about it, you know, the potential for big Moscow derbies, because you'd have five Moscow teams in the top flight then would be big. So, you know, and there's plenty of space in the, in the Lushniki for them. And, you know, they have to continue the social distancing measures, you you know, 82,000 capacity, capacity stadium, you know, there's plenty of, of space there. The only issue with that then would be, though, is, is let's say for someone like Velez, if they were to go up and they've still only got a very small ground, you know, Torpedo have got a billionaire owner who can, you know, hire out the... Lushniki, no problem, but someone like Velez, that that could become more problematic because they've obviously got nowhere near the size of fan base Torpedo has got. Um, but I do, yeah, I take on board the the what you said, James, about the competition aspect of it. You know, you want to reward clubs that are doing well on the on the field. You know, it should be a meritocracy, and you know, especially turning away a club like Velez, who you know, let's say for example, you know, this is a, a privately run club. We're trying to encourage more private investment in Russian football. You know, I understand the situation with Orenberg if it, if their ground was just a two thousand capacity stadium with one old stand and no room for press boxes, no room for commentator boxes, poor facilities for the players to get to get changed and things like that. I'd understand that, but like you said, it, it was a stadium that was constructed five years ago. So, you know, I'd be inclined to give them a bit of a pass and say, right, you've got two, three years to do it up. To ten thousand, and you know, I think I remember hearing that the pandemic's obviously had an impact too, so that might have put back the refurbishment. So there's a lot of things to consider. You know, that's that's one thing I will say. Yeah, certainly. And I liked the parallel, uh, the thought of the Petrovsky. I mean, that's literally what Tosna did before they were dissolved in 2018. They they are not based in St Petersburg, but Tosna is literally about 25, 30 miles outside of St Petersburg in the Leningrad Oblast. And in these new rules, I believe it is oblast, not just city. So if, say, Tosna were ah, reborn, they could play at the Petrovsky and they would be fine at that 20,000 capacity Petrovsky. 
But it's just, I mean, you look at Zenit and they have their fancy new stadium, which is beautiful. It's absolutely brilliant stadium. The, the area around it's great with the new Metro stop and so on. But <laughs> their stadium was heavily subsidised for by the state, by, I mean, the fact that we're owned by Gazprom and because the state did subsidies for all clubs um, with the World Cup stadiums. So they were able to go from a 20,000 to 70,000 like that. Well, it's a little bit unfair to ask clubs to to build these big stadiums and spend the sort of money that they've got to spend without giving them a chance to make money to do so first because the, the money you get from the Finnell is, is absolutely minuscule. Like it, it, there's literally no comparison in terms of what you get in the RPL, and even that is nothing compared to other like the Western European leagues. So I, I I could see where they're coming from. I just don't like like it. And I mean, Baltica's general director even confirmed that he there. I mean, he he actually confirmed that their Baltica's issue was a financial issue, and that they will need to to stum up the the certain requirements to be able to play in the RPL, but he did go on to say that he didn't like having to meet these requirements. But these financial issues, I think, on the other hand, are sensible. You don't want... you need, We need to stop Tambovs and Angies and Tosner and Amcar. We need to try and create a more financially secure environment. And I don't necessarily think that just giving somebody or forcing somebody to build a big stadium equates to financial security and stability. So I think Baltica and Krillia don't really have much of a leg to stand on to try and protest them. And to be fair, the Krillia director's like, yeah, fair enough. We'll take it. We'll sort ourselves out. Give her a chance. Yeah. What you got to do is look at, look at uh, Mordovia. Yeah. So the, the going down the right lines would do need to promote stability in, in the leagues and especially in the Finnell right now. But there's other ways that can go around doing that rather than forcing teams to have a bigger stadium. I mean, restructuring it for the start and not having it the size of the biggest country in the world for these clubs to try and deal with. But that's a whole other one. And we'll quickly finish off on, on a little bit of a, an analysis of Spartak and a potential managerial replacement. Of course, as we all know, Dominica Tedesco is still set to leave the club at the end of the season. And it has been reported heavily in both the Portuguese and the Russian press that Rui Vitoria is one of the favourites to take over. Now, Vitoria is a former manager of Al Nasser. He's a 51-year-old, born in Portugal, and is most famous for managing Benfica from 2015 to 19. Uh, during this period, he won seven major trophies, including two consecutive league titles and defeated Zenit twice, most importantly, in Europe. He was sacked in January 2019 after a string of poor results, and then obviously, as I mentioned, went on to manage Al Nasser in Saudi Arabia. He's currently unattached, and he's been linked to the job along with Leonardo Jardim, uh, Cindric Tripkovsky, the current Slavia manager, Rudy Garcia, and Paolo Fonseca, all big names that I'm sure we're all aware of, but we understand that Victoria uh, Victoria is the current front runner and favourite to get the job. So, Richard, do you follow European football and especially Iberian football quite a lot? What's your thoughts on Victoria potentially moving to Spartak? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because we've obviously seen a number of names linked 
in the um, in the press with the job recently. You know, I think names like Rudy Garcia has been mentioned, and Leonardo Jardim. That's just two names. Jindrit Tripsovsky, the uh, Slavia Prime manager, he's another name who you know has been been mentioned. Vittoria is an interesting one. Um, I I've dug a little bit deeper into his career, and pre Benfica, he won Vittoria. SC or Vitalia Gimenez, he won the first ever Portuguese Cup before taking the um, the job at Benfica. So we obviously had a bit of pedigree before that. He got to the semi-finals, sorry, the quarterfinals of the Champions League in um, 2015-16, beating, as you said, James, he beat, they, beat, they beat Zenit that season in the round of 16 before I think Bayern Munich, not the moment. But he only lost 3-2 on aggregate to Bayern. So that's not a bad, I think that must have been, that was Pep's buying as well that was Guardiola's buying so you know that was that's a decent enough um set of results I think he got to the last 16 once again I think it was in 2016-17 the following year admittedly the 28-17-18 season for Benfica wasn't great in Europe they lost all their games in Europe that year uh, they were in the same group as Siscar, Basel and Man United in the Champions League but he has a good record in um, Portugal I say two two uh, Portuguese titles seven domestic honours um, looked like it all went a bit sour at the end um, of his time at Benfica, um, but but yeah, um, I mean, do I think Spartak? I mean, if this if if they do go ahead with with these reports and you know Vitoria as the front runner for the job does eventually end up getting the job, um, could Spartak have done better? Probably yes. I probably would say they could have done better. Yes, I would have quite liked to have seen them probably push the boat out for someone like a Peter Botts who was recently. Let go by Leverkusen. Maybe even someone like a. Um, maybe even see if if uh, Lucien Favre would have been interested because I think that would have been a very good appointment. But but to be fair to Vitoria, there were some names like um, Forsten Fink who were being touted around for the Spartak job. Who I definitely think Vitoria is an improvement on that. Um, like you said, James, he's managed in Saudi Arabia before. That's got a foreign limit. Obviously, you know, I don't, I don't watch any Saudi football or any Asian football, so I couldn't compare what standard that it, that actually is. But, but at least he's got experience of working in a league with, um, you know, foreign player restrictions. So that that could help. Um, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Will he um, maybe try and move for some? Maybe have a look at the Portuguese market for Spartak for some players. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued to see what where, where this will go because you know Benfica. You know he, he did he did a relatively decent job there. You know you would say it obviously went a bit sour at the end, but you know how many managers tend to stay in jobs more than four years nowadays? It's it's a much shorter shelf life than what it used to be. So yeah, um, sort of in the middle with this one. It could have been better, but it could have been worse. So be interesting to see how it goes. He can he can get results against Zenit. That's one thing Spartak definitely need. <laughs> Yeah, certainly. That's the one of the big bogey teams of late. Now, Vittoria did take over from Jorge Jesus, who controversially moved to their big rival Sporting Lisbon. And, and Jesus is a bit of a tactician, really, and highly, highly successful at Benfica. I mean, he won the league three times, got them to the Europa League final twice. And Vittoria himself was really less so of a tactician, followed on, but he really did focus upon youth. And during his time at Benfica, um, Renato Sanchez, Edison, Nelson Semedo, and Victor Lindelof were all sold a profit for by him, uh, under him. Now he didn't necessarily give them all his debuts, but they were regulars under his stewardship and sold for good profit, which is 
something that all clubs really, and all club owners in particular, really like like to see in a manager. Now, on the pitch, I think he would be potentially a good fit. He's general preferred tactics are 4-4-2 or a 4-3-3 later on, but it's more so focused upon development and progression out wide and really basing upon a setting up a very solid defensive structure first. Now, Tedesco was kind of the opposite of that, and I think some a, a solid defensive structure is something that would really do Spartak well on the pitch. But off the pitch, I'm really not convinced he's the sort of man that Spartak need. If you look, there's no coincidence that during Spartak's history, even in the 90s when they were so dominant, the person in charge has been very charismatic and somebody that who can bring the disparate sets of fans all kind of pulling in one direction. Carrera was like that. Tedesco, to an extent, is like that. He hasn't seen a similar sort of success, but he has that charisma that you would think that he would fit well in that job. Uh, and of course, the Star Eaton brothers, all all like that. And the greatest manager of Spartak's history, Oleg Romansev, is exceedingly charismatic, but very dry and droll in nature. It wasn't quite like Tedesco, where he's quite fat, where he's very enigmatic, but he was very passionate and his players adored playing for him, despite him being a little bit of a, a general in, in terms of his, his strictness. But Vittoria is quite played and unassuming. He's he's really the opposite of this. So off the pitch, I'm not quite sure about it. On the pitch, I think it could be sensible decision. But as you said, Richard, I think this ability to work with a foreign element could be quite crucial. Um, Saudi Arabian League has a strict seven foreigners per team, which is even stricter than ours, which is crazy. But there is, of course, a massive difference between the AFC Champions League and the Saudi level compared to where the RPL is right now to the UCL, which is the most difficult part of balancing any foreign element in my eyes. David, what what do you think? Do you think there's potentially better options out there? Or is this maybe a bit of a safe move for what is a crazy and anything but safe club right now? Um, I mean, I don't know a great deal about about Pretoria. Um what I will say is no safe. There's no safe move when it comes to bringing a foreign manager to Russia. We've seen, you know, the best of the best come and struggle. And we've seen guys who have no real experience come over and do quite well. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I, won't, I won't say anything until I've seen if he comes in and see what he does. Uh, you know, it's a it's a crying shame that Tedesco is going to go just because of how just purely because of how likable he is um, to probably everyone except uh, probably Zenit fans who probably hate him. Um, you know, he he just seems like he's he's you know he he's not getting the best results out of the team all the time. You know, there are definitely some letdowns, but I feel like that's not necessarily down to his coaching more to do with uh, the players at his disposal. Um, so yeah, it'll be, it will be a big shame because he's such a great character as well uh, to see him go. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll see, you know, Unai Emery has won the Europa League, what, like four times or something, and he's going for another final uh, this week. Um, he's one of the greatest, let's be honest, he is one of the greatest uh, tournament managers probably of all time in terms of that record that he's got. And uh, in Russia, he was, you know, dreadful. Um, and it can happen to the best of foreign coaches. So it's going to be interesting, you know, to see how how he would adapt coming in, and I wonder if 
foreign managers over the years have all been scared off because of the the ownership structure at, at Spartak. You know, no no foreign manager seems to last very long there. Let's be honest, uh, even the ones who do well. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how he gets on if it you know if it's him that comes in. Um, but I think it'll be a tough adaptation period for probably a guy who um, you know, it's it's going to be a big culture shock for him. I think that's really the crucial part of this is no matter if it's a highly successful foreign manager, a relatively new club legend in, say, an Olich type or somebody who's been very successful domestically like Semak or a massive name abroad who has never really been abroad. It could be anything. It could be anyone who's very good to very bad, very Russian to not very Russian at all. And right now at Spartak, they'll probably struggle. I mean, Tedesco's got a very good reaction from some of his players this season. Started off incredibly well, especially where they were at uh, a year to 18 months ago under Koninov. But at the end of the day, this is a club which is batshit crazy and ran by an oil magnate who doesn't have a clue what he's doing and hasn't had a clue what he's been doing for the last 10 to 15 years and an Instagram star. So... <laughs> there's not really many other people with any real autonomy in that club. Gazizov going there and getting shipped out within a year just shows what Spartak is right now. And maybe maybe this sort of unassuming and and quite standoffish but steadfast character is is a good thing for the club in terms of the roller coaster that Spartak is this season. They're sometimes unbelievable and unbeatable. And at other times, look like they've never played together. So maybe a boring guy is just what Spartak needs. But what Spartak really needs is for Dune to go. And the sooner, the better, to be <laughs> to be frank. But anyway, we've came to the end of this week's podcast. We're going to we'll be returning the same time next week with a little bit more of a regularly structured pod. It was a little bit different this week. We're, we're trying to make it a little bit more topical due to the series of events that took place in the week and we've got two week game weeks left of the RPL and as usual we'll be rounding off the season with our team of the season so get ready for that one but this has been the Russian Football News Podcast goodbye for now Веди его, беги, точнее его удар. Но мяч берет ноги решительный вратарь. Не напрасно футбольное поле Самых ловких и смелых плечок. Здесь нужны тренировка и воля. Быстрота, увлечение, расчет.